Hi, everyone, and thank you for giving us your time today. I'm Ian Hamilton, and in case you're new here, I'm recording this from our studio in virtual reality. I'm wearing a Quest 2 with hand tracking. I was just testing it out here. It seems like it's actually improved. I can move my hands in front of each other if I move them quickly enough. And I'm joined by my co-host, David Heaney. He lives on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, and I've never met him in the physical world. But we come together each week to talk about the latest developments shaping the next generation of personal computing. We air this show on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific in front of a live YouTube audience, and VR download is available for listening on every major podcast platform. Let's get into it, Heaney. What do we have today? So first, we're going to talk about that photo that was tweeted by a developer that appears to show PlayStation VR 2 in the wild, not a render, not a mock-up, the actual headset in the wild. We're also going to be talking about the confirmation that PlayStation VR 2 will use Toby eye tracking. Uh, that was uh, revealed in February as being in negotiations, but it's now been confirmed that it, that's happening. The third thing we'll talk about is Quest finally getting video recording settings, kind of, not within the headset. It's actually on PC. And finally, we'll talk about the comments that were shared by Reuters from Mark Zuckerberg when he was talking internally to Meta employees and Meta's chief product officer. And those are some very interesting comments because they suggest some very turbulent times coming up for the company and some cost cutting. So, you know, ever since Oculus has been acquired, Meta, formerly Facebook, has been in such a growth mode, but it looks like now they're going to be a lot more careful with how they spend their war chest. Yeah, this first one, Heaney, let's get right into it here. I'm going to throw this image up here. We got our first look at PSVR 2 in the wild, and I went and tried to find a comparable image from PSVR 1, and I actually had to find two separate images to get all of the hardware together required for the original PlayStation VR system. And it was quite a lot to see it all together compared to the PSVR 2. Can you recap for our audience what happened here with this image and what insight we have into what this hardware is? Yeah, so the developer of Ultra Wings 2, BitPlanet Games, tweeted out this image and saying that they were confirming that their title was coming to PlayStation VR 2. They very quickly took it down after people sort of commented the first image we've seen of this headset. And obviously, whoever put it up didn't realize that presumably Sony are not allowing developers to do this, given that no other developer has done it. I think they then jokingly tweeted that this was fake or suggesting that it was fake but i think it's quite obvious that this is not fake it's very clearly a real image of that development kit although from the looks of it it doesn't look to be any different from the consumer hardware which isn't abnormal pretty much all of the vr systems what developers get in the months before the system launches is almost identical to the hardware that consumers get i love how real the image seems right when they're sort of joking that it looks fake this is actually one of our best views at how this thing will feel in the real world if it's actually sitting in our room. And this cable, Heaney, I keep staring at this cable compared to the endless cables in that other image I had, right? Let's go through them here. When you go and unbox the original PlayStation VR, you get this link box thing that connects to your TV and processes some of the information going to the headset, right, Heaney? And you have cords that are numbered in order of sort of how you should connect them to that box. One, two, three, four, I think it is, something like that. And you've also got power to this box. You've got HDMI going out to your TV, as well as to, I think, the link box. 
all this stuff. And then you also have to have the camera coming into the box. And then you've got your move controllers, obviously, to be seen by the camera, as well as the headset to be seen by this external camera. This has to be positioned just right next to your play space. This camera should be put high, so you have the maximum play space. I didn't take count of how many times I did not use my PlayStation VR over the years, specifically because this was too hard of a thing to set up at any given moment or even change slightly. Heaney, have you had dealt with this wire situation? Yeah, and the thing is, when it's all laid out neatly like this, that's the ideal case. If you're someone who really cares about cable management in your living room, PlayStation VR 1 is an absolute nightmare because when you actually have it in your living room, it is just these cables all kind of amalgamate into a complete mess. So it's going to, you know, obviously we've criticized on this show PlayStation VR 2 not being wireless. And you know, I will say I still think that's a missed opportunity. I still think it should have at least been designed so that it could have an optional wireless adapter someday. But you know, to put a silver lining on it, it is a massive improvement over this situation to go to a single USB Type-C cable that can be plugged into the front of the PlayStation 5. No PlayStation camera that needs to be perfectly positioned, as you said. No complicated link box situation. This is a lot more convenient, and it will be a big improvement for people who are used to PlayStation VR 1. Which obviously leads us to the question of cost and how it will compete compete price-wise. I noticed there was a question, I think, to Andrew Bosworth about PSVR 2 in his most recent AMA session. And I think he kind of described PSVR 2 as being in a separate, in a different product category as uh, the things that Meta is trying to do, which, of course, we've heard that again and again, and it is sort of true. But still, people aren't going to buy both headsets, by and large, you're going to pick one or the other. And obviously, that choice is made easier for you sometimes if you already have like a system like the PS5 in your home. But Heaney, cost and eye tracking is going to be a significant thing. The next subject here on our list is we've got confirmation that PSVR 2 will use Toby eye tracking. So in February 2022, there was announcement that Toby was in negotiation with Sony, and that is now a done deal, right? So it is going to be Toby's eye tracking technology in PSVR 2. We've tried Toby's eye tracking in the past. It's been used in other headsets across the board almost. It's still kind of unclear to the end user how that's going to benefit them. Heaney, can you walk us through those benefits? Yeah, well, eye tracking in general, obviously we can talk about the benefits, but firstly we can say that there really was no other option to go, than to go with Toby other than if Sony were to develop their own internal system. And at the time when this negotiations were being announced, we were saying that this kind of suggests that that happening so late, maybe Sony was working on its own internal eye tracking system and it wasn't up to quality. Because as you said, Toby has been used in so many headsets already their eye tracking, including you know the Pico Neo 3i, including the HP Reverb G2 Omnicept Edition. So it's proven hardware. And when I was talking to Toby, they really kind of underscored just how difficult this is to get right, because any company can make an eye tracking system that works great for 90% of people. The problem is that as you get further and further into the 90th, 91st percentile, the 95th, the 99th, you get Variances in people's eyes, either through just genetic differences or through uh, eye problems that people have developed over their life, where tracking the eye reliably and at the incredibly low latency that VR requires just becomes harder and harder. So you get these few companies that have really spent years specializing in this and solving this problem. 
We know that Meta has been working on this for many years. We know from patents that obviously other companies like Valve and Apple have been working. But Toby is the only one that's really proven at scale that they can do it. So obviously, when you do get eye tracking into a system, regardless of what company has provided it, that means you can do things like guide the user through lens separation adjustment so that they either through an automated mechanism or through just manually telling them what to do can get a perfect fit for their eyes. You can do theoretically dynamic distortion correction so that you d- you've changed the distortion matrix of the lens based on where someone's eyes looking at, which should reduce the kind of pupil swim, that distortion and swimming effect you see in the lens as you sometimes turn your head around in certain VR headsets. And most importantly, the headline feature that a lot of people are interested in is foveated rendering, which Sony has confirmed for PlayStation VR 2, where only what you're directly looking at is rendered in full resolution, and then your your peripheral vision at that moment in time is rendered at a lower detail. And that obviously allows either for better performance, or you can use that extra performance to get uh, better fidelity graphics, which is something that we should already be seeing from PlayStation 5 relative to you know the mobile tier Quest games we've been seeing. Given that you, they have a full power of a PS5 and foveated rendering, I'm really optimistic about the kind of graphics we're going to see on PlayStation VR 2. And when you combine that with the HDR OLED display, we have never seen a HDR display ship in a VR headset before. I think the, the visual experience of this thing is going to potentially feel a generation ahead of anything we've seen yet. And obviously the final kind of use cases for eye tracking is that you can use it for more precise menu selection so that you know if, if a user is trying to point at something with their controller but slightly misses, but they're actually looking at that menu item, you can infer, okay, they really meant to click that menu item. They didn't mean to you know, shoot their laser selector off in the distance. There is social interaction and in that you can make eye contact with people and you can see what they're really looking at because in this studio, our eyes are completely simulated. It's just based on giving different objects gaze priority. And then finally, there is the, the example you always love to cite, which is very important, throwing in VR. So all of these controllers, except for the Valve Index-like controllers, have a you know a grip button where as you throw, you really just release your middle finger. And that's obviously not how we throw things in real life. So you're not going to get the real arc that you would normally get. But if you have eye tracking and you can see that user was looking at a certain position as they were throwing the grenade, and then they threw in roughly that direction, you can kind of do an aim assist for throwing that is going to make that a lot better because one of the real frustrations if you ever demo VR to people is that throwing is just not natural with touch-like controllers. It takes a long time to get used to it. I'm seeing a lot of people discussing the wire situation with PSVR and they're making the comment that they just set up their PSVR once and let it sit there and they're good to go for years. And PSVR has been that system for a lot of people, just like SteamVR track systems have been that system for a lot of people out there. You just set up those base stations in the corners of your room and you're good to go for years. But that's that's a very good point about why these are separate markets, right? That's appealing to a certain kind of player who has a specific gaming space that they dedicate to their recreation time. And not everyone has that, right? They, there's some times where you want to sit at a desk. There's other times where you want to show it off to friends in another room and you've got a whole room scale space and you don't maybe want necessarily all the added features that you can get out of this system is going to be tuned for incredible levels of immersion, isn't it, Heaney? Between the very impressive haptics technology that Sony has 
debuted with the PS5, the head haptics technology that they're going to put inside this headset, it's going to be an incredible level of immersion compared to that first generation, right? Yeah, this is going to be the new frontier of high-end VR. And obviously, you can argue if you're a PC user or a PC enthusiast that, yes, you can build a PC that is more powerful than a PlayStation 5, but when, but there's no PC hardware that puts all of these things into one package. There is no high-end PC system that gives you this built-in eye tracking and advanced HD haptics and a HDR OLED display with 2K resolution. And then obviously the, the, the games that Sony's announced, the fact that they are going to have a lineup of uh, your muted uh, 20 plus games, that's just something that we don't see right now in the PC space. Even if you did have a high-end headset on PC with a really powerful PC, you're still playing those same AAA ports from a few years ago. Hopefully what we do see is that some of those big titles that Sony makes happen for PlayStation VR 2 eventually also come to, to the PC space. And hopefully that would spur on demand for better hardware on PC. I'll still make my argument then again that maybe I'm living in fantasy land, but interoperability between the PSVR 2 and a PC system, it's only an added benefit for the end user, even if it is very hard for Sony to make a case for people buying a PS5 in that case. I just, I I want Half-Life Alex. If you have to go to the PlayStation store for it, fine. I hope Valve brings it over. And I really want to experience Half-Life Alex on this system. Let's switch from PSVR. We are talking about the very details that we actually need next out of Sony's system. We've got a real good picture of what the hardware is, but we want to know what that hardware will do in specific software scenarios. And almost as soon as Sony confirms and really starts promoting a bunch of those exclusive titles that they're going to have on their system that Meta won't, that's going to really start kicking up this competitive discussion between these platforms. But right now, let's talk about this meta news that we've got. So the Quest has gotten some new recording settings. This is something we've been hearing about for quite a long time, and it's not actually the consumer-facing feature that everyone wants. Kitty, why don't you walk us through exactly what these recording settings mean and what we can hope for in the future? Yeah, so if you record by default on Quest from the in-VR UI, you get a square view because each eye is actually rendered in a roughly square aspect ratio. And it's at something like 30 frames per second. It may be 36 or somewhere around that. So obviously creators, if they're trying to develop uh, create videos for YouTube, they want a much higher frame rate than that. They want it to look more smooth. And ideally, a lot of creators want that widescreen view. So what Meta have done is they've added recording options to the Oculus Developer Hub app for PC. And the Oculus Developer Hub app is actually a better companion to Quest 2 than the official Oculus app that you use to connect Oculus Link and the one that you use to you know, buy Oculus Rift Store games. It gives you the ability to do things like Disable Guardian, set up wireless ADB, view and transfer your media files over to your PC. If you're not currently using that and you are someone who is quite technical and likes to kind of uh, use your Quest with your PC in any way, it's great to do. A lot of the functions of it are already in SideQuest. So if you already use the SideQuest app, you're already kind of familiar with a lot of this. But Meta are actually kind of adding features to this Oculus Developer Hub every month. One of the weird things I noticed is that when you do change it to the 16.9 widescreen aspect ratio, which is one of the things you can do now with this update, is that it doesn't just 
crop the recording. It crops your entire view. So in VR, you will get black bars at the top and bottom. Your field of view will be narrower. Maybe that's a glitch, but I rebooted my headset and tried every time and it seemed to continuously do that. Have you tried it? It would be kind of cool to see the frame in my space, but that sounds pretty aggravating to see the limited field of view that way. I don't know. I guess if you're filming, maybe seeing actually what you're wanting to capture makes sense. Yeah, because as we've explained on this show before, when these recording settings were teased, the problem with recording in widescreen on Quest is that it does not expand the view that you're recording. It's just a lossless crop. So there's no real solution around this other than theoretically, Meta could get the Quest to record a wider field of view when you are doing this, but that would significantly reduce the performance because it's not the resolution that's the problem. It's that you're now re- rendering so many more objects that, you know, so much more of your of the world in your view. What we will probably have to wait for to get really native widescreen recording is just headsets that have a wider field of view. So right now you're choosing when you're recording in widescreen on Quest, you're choosing between do I want to have a better experience for people watching on TVs and watching on laptops in a 16-9 ratio Or do I want to capture the full frame? Because this really becomes a problem in cockpit games like Warplanes, World War I, where if you do record in widescreen, you're cutting off the actual cockpit controls, which really ruins a lot of what makes the game special. The viewer can't really understand what's going on. It's it's no different than just seeing someone play a console fight sim game when they can't even see your hands touching the controls. The other thing is in a melee game, say you're playing Gorn, the player, the viewer can't even see the bottom of the screen where your weapon is a lot of the time. And if you're very close to someone in any melee game, they can't see the top of the enemy. So I'm, you know, personally, I'm a fan of people just recording in square. I think if you're going to record in in VR, you should just record square to get the full view. Though obviously I understand that's not everyone's preference. What this is useful for obviously though, is that you can increase the frame rate to get a higher view you can also increase the bit rate so that it's not so blocky and that's obviously very useful but i noticed when i did that there was quite a lot of stutter in the recording so we're going to need to get better chips to make that not a problem and i i suspect that eventually because casting to a screen is so important and because all of this sharing and recording is so important to kind of marketing vr that in some future headset maybe not soon but eventually there'll be either a dedicated part of the chip for this or a dedicated chip because yes there's a video encoder chip in the snapdragon chips but you're still using some of the cpu in general if you had a completely separate chip that was just for casting and recording and streaming that would mean that you could do all these things without that performance and battery life hit that is a real problem on these mobile systems Mm, very interesting i'll just move into our last subject here on our planned discussion because i think it's related in that There's a process underway at Meta right now, and it comes from a strategy from the CTO, Andrew Bosworth, where he talked about this on his blog a while back, and he calls this process ruthless prioritization. And one of the things that we've heard in recent weeks that they've deprioritized is their portal video calling device. And Heaney, we've we've gone back and forth for a long time here discussing the potential for that portal video calling device to be tightly integrated into the Quest 2 as precisely what you're talking about, right? You could view mixed reality on there. You could maybe perform body tracking if they could build the feature set right or, or, or get the latency down enough. There's a lot of potential for them to use that video calling device for Quest 2, 
but all indications are that they're either focusing on a business only market or otherwise moving out of that product focus. And instead, one of their lead priorities is Cambria, right? So they are laser focused on shipping Cambria, this high end standalone VR headset this year. And it seems like Meta is focusing a ton of its efforts around delivering Cambria. They also have made an assortment of comments that we've not heard come out of Facebook or Meta anywhere. They're not stopping hiring, but they're also not going to replace some positions, right, Heaney? Why don't you walk us through some of these comments and the significance of them? Yeah, so in the past months, we've been hearing these reports that Meta is slowing its hiring. And this is something that's actually happening across the entire tech industry. This is not exclusive to Meta. There are a lot of startups and big name companies that are actually firing people. Uh, there are you know reductions of 5% and 10% in many of the tech companies. It looks like over the last few years, the kind of inflation of tech stock value uh, value has been a bubble, some would argue, and now companies are kind of correcting that down, especially given that a lot of these companies are expecting a general recession in the coming months and years. So they're trying to kind of lean down for that. Meta obviously has its own unique problem in that it is seeing a reduction in its revenue growth that may even translate to a reduction in revenue because of factors like Apple's major privacy changes in iOS that means that they are less able to directly target people. Because we have to remember, when it comes to Meta and Google, the vast majority of their business value is that their algorithms know enough about you that they can target the advertisements that you are most likely to click. That is the actual gold of these companies. That's their oil, that algorithm, and it's data that it has about you. So when it has less accurate data to target, these companies cannot make as much money. And that's kind of been the what... Zuckerberg and his other executives have been talking about in their earnings calls and to investors for the past year, telling them to get ready for that. So in this call this week, we've heard that Meta's original plan this year was to hire 10,000 engineers, and they're now going to hire somewhere between six and 7,000. And Zuckerberg told his staffers, there's some quite really interesting quotes here that really show you how he's thinking about this. He said, if I had to bet, I'd say this might be one of the worst downturns that we've seen in recent history. He then said that he was going to turn up the heat on performance management to weed out staffers unable to meet aggressive goals. And here's a crazy quote. He says, realistically, there are probably a bunch of people at the company who shouldn't be here. So we've heard that other executives are doing this kind of strategy of not firing people, but trying to almost push them out by saying, you know, if you aren't up to the standard of working in a, in a more difficult environment, we don't want you here. He says, part of my hope for raising expectations and having more aggressive goals and turning this heat up a bit is that I think some of you might decide that this place isn't for you and that self-selection is okay with me. So as well as this Zuckerberg internal call, there was a memo, which you can read uh, online in full on our website, or there's other uh, outlets that have published it from the chief product officer, Chris Cox, where they said the company must prioritize more ruthlessly, operate leaner, meaner, and have better executing teams. And he said, I have to underscore that we are in serious times here and the headwinds are fierce. We need to execute flawlessly in an environment of slower growth 
where teams should not expect vast influxes of new engineers and budgets. So what you know, what we've heard in the past six, seven years of Meta's research and development and its funding is that they've just thrown money at the VR and AR problem left, right, and center. Huge teams of engineers and all of the other supporting staff, huge budgets to buy and do whatever they want and fund all this content, including from you know big name titles that we've seen over the years. But it looks like in the coming years, they're going to have to be a lot more careful about how they spend and a lot more selective. And one of the advantages for the industry, obviously, there's going to be a disadvantage when it comes to what they invest in the wider industry. But one of the advantages should be that it makes other companies more capable of competing because Meta has to actually execute now. They can't just throw money at the problem anymore. Well, they may have to throw money at a few problems instead of a lot of them. Let me read this quote from Chris Cox, the chief product officer at Meta, where he specifically outlines in one paragraph what they expect out of this whole sort of division at Meta. Quote, Metaverse, avatars and horizon worlds and platform remain the key priorities, and our focus now is on execution. On avatars, we need to finalize our new art style, fully launch our avatar art store, and improve avatar experiences across VR and the family of apps. In Horizon, we're focused on the core experience, increasing growth and retention through improved performance and reliability, launching cross-screens, integrations across the family of apps, and building new social experiences in the product. As critical product infrastructure, we are focused on building project simile to launch company accounts accessible everywhere across family of apps and Reality Labs devices to power continuity across the metaverse in hardware we are laser focused on the successful launch of Cambria in H2, which inaugurates our prosumer industrial grade mixed reality product line. And I want to read off one more real qu- quick quote to get it out of the way here because someone else was bringing up John Carmack's comment of what she's been saying for years now. But Carmack made a comment specifically at the last Connect event from Meta, and he said that. The so-called metaverse, I mean, this is me uh, saying that it's the so-called metaverse, quote, we could spend years and thousands of people possibly and wind up with things that didn't contribute all that much to the ways that people are actually using the devices and hardware today. That was a warning when John Carmack said it. And I feel like we are now just, what, nine months or less later seeing Mark Zuckerberg and the entire team there really trying to get in line and make sure that they're spending their dollars effectively. Isn't that right, Heaney? Yeah, that does seem to be an irony that Carmack has been pushing for this, even when the economic circumstances were such that Meta could just hire whatever teams it wanted and fund whatever it wanted. But now... Out of economic necessity, it's, they're going to have to think more like Carmack in practical terms. And Carmack has always been heavily critical of these highly abstract ideas, even of some of the research and development that Meta does. Carmack has been critical. He's always been much more of a let's take what we have today and slowly build from it person than a let's look at what's available in the future and try to build it down into products today. So you know, we know that he remains as a consulting CTO. We know that he still does work with Meta, he still does post in the internal forums about all the problems he has and tries to push for these problems. So I wonder if in this circumstance, 
Zuckerberg and the other executives may be more willing to take on the Carmackian advice of kind of doing more with less and being more short-term practical than they maybe would have in the past. Live open Mike's comments saying, it sounds like this guy, that would be Carmack, is grabbing Zuck from bouncing all over the room and make him focus. The part I didn't include from that comment from Carmack was him calling it a honeypot trap for architecture astronauts to go and build the metaverse. And right now, we are in the middle of just nonstop tweets. Heaney, I'm seeing the Epic Games head, Tim Sweeney, write about standards for the metaverse. And one subject that we didn't talk about, people were asking about in our comments that we did report about, but we didn't talk about on our show, was this Metaverse Standards Forum, which is meeting for the first time this month, to iron out exactly what standards or interoperability steps are needed to actually realize this Metaverse concept. It's really interesting to see these tech people who have been working in this industry for 30 years, going back to uh, documents from like the 70s and 80s, it almost seems, to find actually how the groundwork was laid for a lot of the tech that we have today. Yeah, it is interesting that I'm cautiously optimistic about this metaverse standards. I think one of the reasons we didn't talk about it is because we really need to wait and see how it plays out. There are always these attempts to get the industry to come together and standardize on things, but very few times in the history of tech has it actually worked. And obviously the times that it has worked have been monumentous. They've, you know, the setting of the web standards that are used today created the open ecosystem of the web that enabled companies like Facebook to even exist in the first place. So if we can get something like that eventually for VR and AR in the metaverse, that's going to have huge impact. Though, you know, looking at the concrete examples of what they're talking about right now, it's still on basic things like file formats for 3D models and kind of interchange systems. It's not what people would imagine in the literal sense of the metaverse, because we've gotten to this point where there's almost com two completely different definitions of the word metaverse. Some people use it to mean the space and technologies of VR and AR, including all games and apps that are used in it. And that's almost just like saying the VR AR ecosystem. Then there's another idea of the metaverse, which is an a sort of 3D system that you can navigate without downloading separate apps like the web. That's not what we're seeing yet, and there's no real attempt to standardize that. And I don't even think anyone has an idea in mind of how you would even do that. Yes, there is web VR, which just takes the existing web and adds the, it adds the elements you need for VR and AR for standards, but that's not going to get you to the place that you know the sci-fi visions of Snow Crash and Ready Player One present. You need a, a kind of fundamental rethinking with some new ideas. And in this sort of modern environment, the idea of some of these tech companies actually coming together and eventually coming up with a standard like that just seems almost impossible. Look at how long it's taken for the smart home industry to standardize around matter. And it's a lot less ambitious and it still hasn't even launched yet. And it's basically just an interconnectivity system between different devices on a local network. Yeah, that's a fantastic example of exactly the problem at hand, right? Where you've got multiple generations of products rolled out by competing companies that are fundamentally incompatible with each other, right? You've got to go buy one 
communication system, one hub for your Wi-Fi router, and then you you know plug it into your router, and you've got one system of smart home devices that connect to that hub. It's gotten better over the years, but it's still you still have uh, some some fundamental incompatibility stuff, and then they've even sort of stopped making improvements to some of those systems with the expectation that there's going to be this new standard coming. So, uh, yeah, the smart home stuff is a great example of just how incredibly difficult this is going to be for them to accomplish. The example I saw someone talk about on Twitter was, if you don't understand the difference between the internet and the web, you don't have a lot of space to, to comment on this. And I think that's an interesting sort of separation there where like you know you've got the fundamental transmission protocol underlying ip addresses and actual delivery of packets of information in a smart manner over this series of tubes right and then you've got all the things that we've built on top of that fundamental layer right and that's what we call the web the urls that we use to access things and we don't have to think about that fundamental underlying layer that powers everything that's what we're talking about is what is that layer to deliver this metaverse concept and honestly like to to, to your point Heaney, like i've just watched these companies find every possible way to wring out a dollar from one of their customers for the last 20 years we've got amazon and uh, Apple competing now to put you into debt. They're actually putting people into debt as another way of gaining more more revenue off of people. And at the other end of the spectrum, it's like a, such a bizarre thing. You've got companies like Disney building communities that are like themed around some of their various properties, right? So there's another way Disney is trying to profit off of their existing customer base is actually building homes you can you can move into that pay them another way. I'm constantly astounded at the new ways companies come up with to embed themselves deeper into your life. And it's hard to imagine how they all find ways to agree on standards because the example I was thinking about over the weekend, Heaney, is the green bubbles that you get when you're messaging from an iOS device to an Android device. And then the air tags that apple has rolled out where for a while there the air tags only had alerts on ios if someone stuck an air tag that wasn't yours into your belongings uh you could get a notification that someone is basically tracking you on ios only sometime earlier this year they rolled out that feature for android kind of quietly i didn't even know it was out there but you can go and download an app and scan for these little trackers i think of the air tag technology and the way it sort of phones your location back to apple servers without even a normal internet connection right like we don't have the same internet connection you can still get your location off of those air tags that seems to me like a rudimentary tech for this next layer of things where with AR, Heaney, we talk about looking around and getting lots and lots of contextual detail about the world around us. And it's very easy to imagine AirTag tagging in 3D the exact location of something. You could put on a headset and know exactly where behind the couch your, your device is using all of this information. My takeaway there is, Heaney, it's, 
it was really rough if you're an Android owner and you've got a threat to your personal safety. You have to go and download an app from the competing platform to make sure no one is tracking you. Like that can't be the model for the way these companies interact in the future is what I'm getting at there, Heaney. Yeah, I think Apple is always going to be the wild card in this because if you look at even the standard we do have today, which is the kind of core development API, we have OpenXR finally that's obviously not yet perfect, but it's at least at a foundational basis where people can actually use it in production apps. Yes, it's still this problem where there are all these vendor extensions that are required, but that was always a problem with even OpenGL at the start. But who's missing from it? There's every big name you can possibly think of except for Apple. And we're still in this world where the EU has had to force Apple to even adopt USB Type-C for iPhone in the coming years. You still, you know, We're still in the world where if you want to send a file from one phone to another, there's a completely different system between Apple and everyone else. AirDrop, if you want to cast to a screen, there's Google Cast and Miracast and AirCast, or what is it called? AirPlay. So we're st- the idea that Apple is going to somehow change its tune and go from having its own proprietary system for almost everything to somehow working on some sort of interoperable metaverse just seems like a complete fantasy. But I do wonder what we see from all of the other companies against Apple, because given Apple's huge advantages of its ecosystem effect and its custom chips, maybe that is one of the things that the other companies use in an attempt to fight Apple is complete interoperability. And yeah, the idea you present there of in the same way that iPhones and other Apple devices create a kind of ad hoc local kind of local slash wide network to do things like uh, localization of air tags. It's a fascinating idea to think that maybe Apple glasses will also be able to create an ad hoc network. So even when you're not in somewhere with internet connection, these devices are still talking to each other. But will the industry come together and find a way to do that between non Apple devices? I would say it's almost almost certainly not. That brings me back to the Space Pirate Arena app and the way that developed, right, Heaney? We found in some of the early Quest software indications of a localization API that just got abandoned wholly, right? And I wonder if there was some long-term strategic thinking internally at Meta that realized that this needs to be handled a different way than a proprietary way. You've obviously got systems like Azure Anchors, I think is what they're called, and stuff like that developing. But how these systems are going to localize against one another is going to be a fundamental thing, Heaney, right? We want, I want Space Pirate Arena on two different headsets. We've talked about that in the past. Yeah, the idea, I think it's going to be one of those things again where when you take the example of iMessage, Yes, in the United States, that's a big problem because for some reason, I'm, I'm not aware of why SMS is still very popular in the United States. But if you go anywhere else in the world, it's not a problem because people just use WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. I think we'll see the same thing probably happen in VR and AR, where yes, Apple has its own proprietary system, but there are third-party applications made by companies that maybe don't even exist today that will be the next you know billion or trillion dollar companies that essentially just build their business by building something that is similar enough but works really well for all devices regardless of what you're on. If you look today at things like Rec Room and VRChat, some of the popularity of those systems is that it's on almost any device. Rec Room you can play on Steam VR, on Quest, on PlayStation VR, on non-VR devices like Xboxes and phones. And that seems to be the winning strategy for a lot of these companies in that even if Meta makes Horizon Worlds better than Rec Room in the next few years. And I'm not saying that will happen. I'm just saying even if it were to happen, 
Rec Room still is going to have them beat in the sense that they're just available to so many more people. So I think that's what we'll probably see here again. There will be a company that like WhatsApp that maybe doesn't even exist yet that solves this problem by simply just building on top of what all these proprietary systems do. Hmm. Very interesting comments. And yeah, VR chat is close there as well, right? To to getting to, to some of that layer. Any comments there in particular that we should respond to? A lot of people talking about PC VR there in our comments. Anything that you see that we should address? Vexner is asking, what's the best headset for clarity and field of view at the moment? Depending on how willing you are to accept a lot of technical issues and how willing you are to deal with major kind of technical problems and maybe quality issues and deal with potentially shoddy customer support, the best field of view you're going to get is from Pimax's headsets. If you want to go with more reliable companies, your best option for field of view is still the Valve Index. And you do get good lenses, although the one problem with the Valve Index now is that its resolution is quite low by modern standards. But it's still perfectly passable if you're just looking for gaming applications and you're not trying to read small text or do productivity like that. I like your very long qualifier there before you suggested that Pimax was the widest field of view. We've had people in our comments. I was making fun of the fact that Pimax has a mystery box. And apparently we do have viewers in our audience who have purchased that mystery box. So yeah, we found the audience for the mystery box from Pimax. Paradise Decay asks a very interesting question. Do we think PlayStation VR 2 is or will make Meta look more into PC VR? I think that is really, really fascinating question because what we've seen recently and talked about on this show is that it looks like Meta is working on a system codenamed Avalanche to stream PC VR tier games to Quest from the cloud. It also looks like from a leaked manual that Meta is working with D-Link to release a USB wireless dongle for streaming wirelessly to your Quest without having to worry about how good your router is or how far away you are from your router. Um, so it does look like Meta's working on infrastructure for PC VR, but we know that Meta told us when we asked that Lone Echo 2 was its last big funded Rift title. So it does open up that question. If there are these huge AAA PlayStation VR 2 titles, and if they are timed exclusives, at the end of that timed exclusivity period, is Meta going to try and get it onto the Rift store? Is Meta going to try and get such a game onto Project Avalanche when it eventually launches? Because they, you know, if they're just going to leave this space to others, then they're missing out on a, a tier of gaming that the Quest just cannot provide with a mobile tier processor. Not even in a Quest 3 or a Quest 4 or a Quest 5 can they conceivably deliver the kind of scale and fidelity that you're going to see on PlayStation VR 2. It is a really interesting question. I wonder what we'll see there. Yeah, that is. It is a fantastic question. I was thinking about it too. And there was, yeah, there were those notes in that recent research drop from Meta that some of their systems were PC powered. And there was a comment sort of years back from, I think it was Jason Rubin at Meta suggesting that if there was a reason to return to PC VR or to prove something out on PC VR, they would consider it. And uh, the, the thing we were expecting is Cambria is going to pack in all these additional sensors. And I think there was the comment again from Andrew Bosworth quite recently in that AMA where they were asking, can we expect sort of an upgrade cycle for the Cambria? Is it going to become a 
better device over the lifetime of that headset being out there in the same way Quest 2 has just aged incredibly gracefully, right? There's all these added features that have been rolled out to the Quest 2. Is that going to happen with Cambria? And I think the indication was that, yes, it is. But, Heaney, that's also like a challenge internally to those development teams where if the processors underlying Cambria aren't quite enough of a step forward, all those additional sensors might not be brought to use as well as they possibly could if you had more horsepower. So, like, there's things like multi-hour viewing where if you had verifocal and a wider field of view or higher resolution all those other things that meta talked about being so important to the next generation of visuals and computing if you had that with a wired pc vr experience and it's going to be a couple more years before they can actually put that into a standalone that's actually a pretty useful product right if i can get three displays that are 4k and foveated rendering is working properly or verifocal is making it absolutely correct for me to view each of those displays at any focal length uh that's that's significant reasons to get a pc vr headset isn't it yeah i i I get the argument but i think meta have put so much into their software stack for their operating system that it's it it is definitely not going to happen. We're not going to see another PC-only headset that is just a dumb display. I don't think Verif- standalone is what's holding back Verifocal. I've heard this idea before, but it's, it's a hardware issue. It's a manufacturing issue. It's, it's an idea of actually being able to put this into, some, into an affordable, reliable product rather than being a matter of horsepower. But what really interests me about Cambria's lifespan, as you were talking about there, you know, this idea of will it get huge feature updates through software like we saw in Quest 2 with the, the things like hand tracking and the enhanced features around room detection. I wonder, will we get automatic room detection? If you've been following Quest 2 news recently, you'll know that there's a very basic mixed reality mode and you manually mark out your walls, your windows, your doors, your cabinets. And we've seen recently that Apple have a, a system on iPhone that can automatically detect all these things with the color cameras. I wonder, will Cambria get this a year down the line or six months down the line or whatever? Will Cambria Will you be able to put on Cambria and it will automatically mesh out your walls, your couch, your desk, and all of these things without needing manual input? Maybe you'll have to confirm it and say, you know, is this right tick or X? But surely with a depth sensor and a color camera, that's something that we can see come to this device. Though, as you point out, it may be the processor that is the real limitation there. Wabo saying that PC VR is still the core VR innovation despite the successes of standalone. And I think that's a really interesting comment because we are expecting PSVR 2 to represent a big step forward in innovation. But again, it goes back to my previous comments where, gosh, uh, people are waiting for Deckard. And if Deckard can't get on a reasonable timeline from Valve, then it's really in Valve's benefit to try to get PSVR to support Steam, in my opinion. PSVR 2. I don't know if PC VR is the core of VR innovation at the time right now. There's no hand tracking on the PC VR systems. There's no, you know, there's no need of hand tracking. There's no... I mean, Ultra Leap. I mean, like, Ultra Leap is the the de facto standard, the industry best, right? Yeah, you can buy an Ultra Leap adapter that is only really sold to industry for hundreds of dollars and physically tape it on the front of your headset. But that's not innovation. We're not seeing, there's no developers that are actually building apps for it. We can use it in a 
few demos, but there's none of the games that we're seeing on standalone that use it. There's no mixed reality mode for any of these PC headsets. There's been effectively stagnation in the PC VR space for quite a few years now. And would we like it to see that change? Sure. But it's right now, all of the cutting edge features and all of the advancements in VR are happening on the standalone space. Uh, Really interesting question here from uh, Snapu, who asked, why does everything need to be an MMO like Snow Crash? We talked earlier about, you know, this idea of Snow Crash and Ready Player One. And Jack B gave an interesting response, which I really agree with, which is because that Snow Crash style environment is a sandbox where everyone is in the same sheet of music, as opposed to an absolute anarchy of conflicting worlds and the apps to interact with them. And that is, to me, that is what the word metaverse should have meant before the current marketing term came along that changed it to just mean anything anyone wants it to mean. It should mean that instead of this system today, where if I'm sitting here with you in an app and I say, let's go play mini golf, and you don't have the mini golf app installed, you have to exit this app, open a store, an app store, that's just an idea that's just completely copied over from smartphones, click purchase, enter your card detail, your PIN, wait for this separate application to download, then launch it, but you know, and build your own avatar within each app because that's a thing for some reason. Set up everything within that separate app and then invite me into that sort of system. Even if you do have it installed, if you happen to have an update waiting that hasn't installed because you're in this other app, you have to go, oh, well, let me update my mini golf app. The idea of the metaverse and what the what Snow Crash and Ready Player One presents is that just like the World Wide Web today, and yet yeah, it is an important distinction to make between the internet and the World Wide Web, just like the World Wide Web today, you if you want to navigate to an experience, you just type the address or, you know, in this system, I guess, go through the portal or whatever system you want to do for interaction, and you're there. A system that downloads the content on the fly through a runtime engine. You know, the, the World Wide Web uses a what's called a browser as the runtime engine, and it downloads in the markup and the JavaScript and the, and the CSS styles and all of the image assets, and then puts it all together. That's a completely different idea from what we have today of siloed applications, where a lot of what you're downloading each time when you download these separate apps is actually the core engine files. So yes, there's the assets for each game, but that could conceivably with internet speeds today be brought in dynamically. You're essentially downloading separate versions of the Unity core engine over and over and over again for each app with the developer's code and assets written on top. What we'll need to see if we want to see a Ready Player One Snow Crash vision of the world, where I say, let's play mini golf, and we both just teleport directly into a mini golf experience with no download required, maybe you know a few seconds, is a completely different architecture of how applications and data are separated, where the core engine is something that's either built in to a app or to the operating system itself. And then the data and assets and logic are streamed in separately. That's what we'll need to see for any real vision of the metaverse to be real. In my opinion, is what we'll need to see for VR and AR to ever go mainstream because people are not going to use this app system model with a blindfold on their head and sit and wait for all this. And it's what we need to see a standardization around. And as I've said before, and as many people argue, hypothetically, web VR is already that, web XR is already that, and maybe it will be. But I think we'll need to see something that is similar to the web, but not just built on top of it. Because the web at this point is a little bit too much of a house of cards. It can you, There could 
conceivably be something else that is on top of the internet and similar to the web, but not identical. Yeah, so I'm seeing a lot of people taking issue with the sort of PCVR as the center of the, the, I don't know, innovation space. And I get how far standalone has taken things and how many amazing things have been added to the Quest system, right? Like there have been people who have been watching at every turn for Meta to turn the Quest into a closed system akin to a console and at every turn they've sort of avoided restricting it entirely right they haven't closed it off entirely so it's exactly like a console they have maintained a certain level of openness and we're still waiting for the account system to fall in line and see how much information you're required to attach to your meta account but Heaney, I think of just the endless experimentation that happens with an open PC when you can go and change the operating system or install whatever you want, even brick your own device if that's where you want to take your messing around. That's what people do. I mean, I'm seeing headlines from people. It was a bad headline, right? Where people at Valve were actually criticizing the headline for people modifying the hardware of their Steam Deck and potentially making that device not last as long. But you're free to do that, and it's actually encouraged in some circles with some groups to mess around with their systems in that way. And Quest hasn't really gotten there, right? Like, Heaney, I always talk about this far future where if I want to set up seven or eight fans around my play space and simulate real weather. And uh, when a dragon flies over my head in Skyrim, I feel its actual breath like blowing on me. We need a system for that too. It's not just about the actual dynamic loading of assets. We need additional layers of information that our VR systems today don't actually provide. We need weather and haptics that's streamed across every possible platform in an intelligent way. And we're just not there, right? Yeah, I mean, PC VR and PC gaming in general, it provides more customization. There's modability. You know, I'm a PC gamer and I love all these things and I always have, but it's not what the majority of people actually care about. And even when you do have this system, the, the reality is a tiny fraction of apps will support it because developers build for what people actually have, not for what a few enthusiasts can do. And yes, if you have games that are moddable, you can add all this stuff in yourself. But the majority of VR games are not moddable. That's not something that we're at a market size that developers can really afford to invest in yet. Although obviously there are a few notable exceptions like Brilliant and Sorcery, and, and that's fantastic to see. Um, and just to kind of go back to that idea of, you know, where P- is PC VR where the innovation is coming? Um, think of what we'll have in a, in a few months when Cambria launches. You'll have in this standalone system, built-in eye tracking and face tracking, and accurate color pass-through for mixed reality and hand tracking. And then, you know, if Pimax manages to ship their system, they'll have the body tracking that's built in. And we just, none of that is going to be supported in any PC VR title other than if you get these, you know, expensive add-ons that are supported in a tiny fraction of apps. We will need to see a growth in the PC VR space for innovation to come. The problem is that there has just been, you know, if you look at the Steam hardware survey, there has just not been growth in PC VR since Half-Life Alex came out. You can talk about Half-Life Alex came out two years ago. Boneworks came out quite a while ago. And if you look at uh, Bone Lab, it looks like it's bringing the majority of those features that people said would never be able to be possible on standalone to a standalone system. The 
there needs to be, there is opportunity for innovation in PC VR. The huge amount of horsepower and customizability you have and the freedom to not be restricted to some sort of app store's requirements of what you need to build means that it has it has the unique potential to be the space for innovation, but it's just not what we're actually seeing in the past two years. I get it. I just I think there's there's some magical stuff happening inside some some you know full body tracked VR chat worlds, right? Where people are doing what, what break dancing and all sorts of ridiculous things with their full body avatars. And I know that it's a small subset. But it's also, that's innovation, right? That's the cutting edge of what you can do with this tech. And it's not happening at the same, I don't know, the same rate necessarily on Quest. I don't know. I I get it. There's a lot of innovation happening in both areas. It has been a very interesting discussion in our comments today, hasn't it, Heaney? Yeah, and just want to, I, I pronounced uh, Snafu's name wrong. I, I said Snafu, I think it's Snafu. And uh, yeah, they're pointing out that we, we know when we're saying Cambria in these contexts, we should talk about links. But you know, to be clear, one of the things Lynx did to get from its original target price of $1,500 down to its current target price of around $500 and $600 is that it cut out eye tracking. So Lynx doesn't have the eye tracking and face tracking I was talking about, although it's completely accurate to say it will also have that color pass through and high quality hand tracking that we see on Cambria will be available in Lynx. And I think we've said many times in this show, we are very excited for Lynx to ship. It's going to be the first real mixed reality headset that doesn't come from one of the giant companies and that's great to see we've got a comment here from Guy godin the creator of virtual desktop and i think this is probably where we'll leave off this show today unless there's any last comments for you to get into heaney but Guy said quote there isn't enough content on the quest store this is why pc vr is still very relevant today and will remain so for many years, in my opinion. Thanks for sharing that opinion, Guy. And thank you for all of our commenters for the very robust discussion this week. Thank you for Heaney for getting into everything this week. Is there one last comment you wanted to talk about there? Yeah, no, I was just going to reply to that. I want to be very clear of what I'm saying here. PC VR is relevant. It's absolutely relevant. It's great. I play more PC VR than I do standalone VR. The games, the simulators like racing games and flying games like Elite, Elite Dangerous, like DCS, like Microsoft Flight Simulator are just completely impossible on a standalone headset. And PC VR is still where you're going to get those games, but that's not really innovation. There was flight simulators on on PC VR in 2016. It doesn't feel any different other than a slight bump in resolution than it did when I was playing you know, Project Cars 2 and Elite Dangerous back at the launch of the first original Rift. Yes, it's valuable. Yes, it's amazing. It will not only continue to exist for many years, I think it'll probably get better and better as as the market grows and more opportunity comes thanks to the likes of PlayStation VR 2. But unfortunately, it's just not where we're seeing the innovation right now. And innovation is not value. You can have value without innovation. Mm. Interesting. Thank you so much for the time, everyone. We will be back next Tuesday, 10 a.m. Pacific with a live show every Tuesday. Make sure to link to us. Please get this out to people. We want to make sure that we're a welcoming place for everyone new getting into VR. There are newbies coming into VR all the time, and we want to be a really welcoming place. And you and our comments have been helping to make that the case. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you next week.